From Wacko Chaco Studio, I am Ashwin Chaco, and this is The Fruitful Life, a show about the business of creativity and the stories behind the creators that have made their dreams a reality. Hey folks, welcome to The Fruitful Life, the amazing Michael Embley. Hi, Michael. Hey, how are you? So, Michael, please, for our guest, introduce yourself. Tell us who you are. I'm a children's book illustrator. I'm originally from the States and I live in Ireland now. I've been working doing children's books since I was 19 years old and I'm now 62. So you can do the math. It's been a long time. <laughs> yeah. I don't like to think about it too much because it, um, it, it seems like it might disappear. You know, it seems too tenuous to be doing nothing but children's books for all that time and making a living at it. So. Yeah, and I can't wait to dig into that a little more. But before we go any further, uh, one question I like to ask our guests uh, as an icebreaker is, if you could be a fruit, what fruit would it be and why? <laughs> a fruit? Hmm. Let's see. <laughs> how about, uh, how about uh, uh, a tomato? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Going savory? Maybe because I just love tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Food, so. um, and they get confused for something else. How about that? Sounds more clever. <laughs> that works. Being confused uh, for, always being confused for a vegetable. Which <laughs> hmm. <laughs> could actually be a little too apt. So uh, tell me a little bit about your own journey. What was it like growing up as a kid, you know, being the son of a famous illustrator, children's book author? Well, when you're a kid, you don't think about those things. And he yeah. wasn't, you know, that famous. I mean, children's books is not exactly um, Hollywood. So he would have been well known, you know, in the world of librarians and teachers and, you know, booksellers. But um, I, I wouldn't have thought about it too much. I mean, in fact, it's it's normal. So I would have grown up finding it unusual that kids' parents went out of the house to work because he always worked in the house somewhere upstairs or downstairs or somewhere else. So everybody was always at home all the time. So that was my normal. So really, it just was normal. I mean, and a lot of people would ask, you know, did you learn how to draw from your from your father or from your parents? My mother was also very creative. Um, but I would like to say that he was very proactive about trying to get us to do drawing things. But I, uh, the family is just my sister and I. What I would usually say is that we learned how to draw in spite of what they tried to do to teach us how to draw. <laughs> I mean, it's not necessarily a good thing to be, you know, having your kids, trying to teach your kids how to do things, especially when they haven't asked. I mean, it was just a normal thing. I mean, it wasn't something that I ever aspired to do. Yeah. It was just normal, like a cobbler kid starting to make shoes, I suppose. It had a normality to it. And um, I know a lot, there's kind of two ways that the people who become good at something follow. It seems like they follow either this path of resistance where their family and everybody's against them and they, they rise above this resistance and they, and they fight and they become this thing that they always wanted to be. And then there's the ones that are, that are completely nurtured and they're, you know, brilliant 
um, uh, giants of the world of arts and creativity that um, were completely nurtured their whole life and had no resistance whatsoever. But in my case, it was kind of, I think, having somebody in the family or having the whole family be creative, it took away some of the magic and not in a bad way. And that some people have this thing about creative people. I think, oh, how do you do this? You know, writers, artists, you know, you have this, you have this talent, you're born with this talent. You know, whereas I grew up with it being something that seemed like it was possible that you needed to work, that you could, that anybody could do creative things if you put your mind to it, if you were interested in it, that it, you know, that I saw someone doing it every day and working. So it didn't have that aura of, you know, those sparks coming out of your fingers and that you were born with a little fairy, you know, hit, hit you on the head with their wand when you were a baby or something. And I have met people who have become artists who still have that kind of thing in their heads. Like, I want to be an artist. Right. Artist or a writer, which is like this thing. They yeah. wear it like a badge, like a coat. I've got my artist coat on and I've got my artist hat. And, you know, there was a time when it was a beret and then there was a time when it was a certain haircut and there's a time when it was a certain glasses, you know. I want to be this thing, whereas for whatever reason, good or bad, I don't carry this thing about being an artist. I just think of myself as being me. Yes. And I, I've never tried to be an artist. The stuff that I do is what I did for a living. And I do enjoy it. And I do like being expressive and creative. But I'm not worried about somebody seeing me as an artist. Or I, I found in talking to other people that that's somewhat unusual for me mm. to be so blasé about it and so... Um, simply something that I do. I don't always enjoy it. Um, yeah. It's work. So in my spare time, I don't draw pictures for fun. You know, I have other things to do. You know, there's a little bit of balance. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to draw pictures every second of my life. I'm not obsessed like some artists and creative people. Nothing wrong with it. That's just that's just not me. Cycling was my other thing, and. Mm. Used to, it's a little bit less right at the moment. That took over a huge part of my life, and I did a lot of racing. And so, you know, half of the day I'd be sitting at a desk alone in a room um, with a blank piece of paper drawing funny little characters. And then later that day, I might be screaming down a mountain with about 10 other people and then sprinting and risking my life and doing other ridiculous things, even into my old age. So there's quite a difference in, um, you know, that was, that's been my balance since I was like a teenager, which is really when I started doing professional work. <clears throat> I didn't do that on purpose either. I just always liked bikes, but I wasn't able to get paid for it. I, I usually joke with people. I have two jobs, one that I get paid, one that I get paid for and one that I have to pay for. <laughs> yes, cycling is an expensive hobby. <laughs> Not as expensive I, as yacht racing, or yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Uh, it depends how far down the rabbit hole you go and how how much you want to spend on. <laughs> I know people that are into printmaking, okay, and yeah. that ain't cheap. You know, oh, yeah, you yeah. Buy yourself true. a proper huge press with a giant. I mean, uh, you yeah. have to buy a whole studio and, and or something. Um, so the arts can be very expensive. I mean, and a lot of artists never make a profit. You know, you can end up mm. spending more money unless you get a grant. I mean, it can cost more to, far more to produce the work than it 
than it ever would to be able to sell it. It's similar to cycling. I think you made that important point there about, you know, creatives or creativity being a natural part of who we are. And some people choose to follow that expression further and they become the artists and others repress that and uh, or it expresses itself in a different way. And, and being an artist is almost just being yourself and the artwork is just an expression of who we are rather than, oh, I want to become this personification of the idea of an an artist. No, absolutely. I think if you were to ask me, if your next question was supposed to be, what is the meaning of it all? <laughs> what is art? I mean, yeah. art, if you know your history, art became, art came before everything. Yes. You know, the very first, other than survival, one of the very first things that human beings did where there's, um, <clears throat> there's a handprint that I think that's the oldest thing that they can they know of that any human had left behind. So a lot of things happened then with the art. I mean, and they didn't think of it as being, I'm, I'm an artist. Yeah. <laughs> it was no like, ooh, you're an artist and you're not an artist. No, art was, well, it became kind of mystical because it is mystical in one way in that art is an expression of something that has no other place to be expressed. And I, my personal definition would be that every every piece of art that you see, whether it's or experience, whether it's dance or sculpture, you know, something graffiti on the wall, if it clicks with you, it's it's not always something that you can understand why it's clicking. You just sort of like it. And some people almost say like, "Oh, I like that." Well, oh, well I kind of like that. I don't know why, but I, I kind of like that. Say so it doesn't matter. You know, if you like it, you like it, you know, it, yeah. it struck something in you. And to me, that thing about connecting with a piece of art, whether you, whether it was the maker or the viewer, the person experiencing it, it's a piece of this lifelong quest of identity, human beings that they, mm. you know, religion is part of that game that we played about trying to, define the undefinable but art is the same thing to me as religion is trying to tap into something that we have no explanation for and every time we create a piece of art that connects it's another little piece of that puzzle that falls into place like clink now it doesn't finish the picture it's, yeah. a, it's a piece of the puzzle but it makes sense to us and somehow that 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 little piece of the puzzle we're that much closer to understanding everything yeah but, but everything really to humans is us me yeah. not only us but me in particular like that's our yeah. number one focus me you know who am i yeah. so yeah i think art really is about trying to understand ourselves first mm. but people in general yeah and when it connects it's, it's another little piece you get a little bit closer every time a little bit closer the more art you more involved you are with art, the, the more that is. And I think it happens both in doing it and being involved with somebody else's creation because, and it's really a shame that people don't do it more universally. Like you said, that it, mm. it, it, my father who did a lot of talking in schools, and I did too, 
but I remember his quotes more than my own quotes. But, but he would say that, you know, that if you below a certain age in a class, you're going to say, okay, yeah. how many artists are in here? Yeah. yeah. All put Everybody. Their hands up. How many, how many singers are there? Yeah. All put their hands up. Yeah, yeah. How many people tell jokes? All put their hands up, you know, and then at a certain point, my first, second, third grade, you ask the same question and, and like less hands go up, less hands. Up. By the time you get to high school, like nobody puts your hand up. Maybe yeah. the one artist, the one who's called the artist, the one who wears black and sits in the corner and has their hair cut off and shaved on the side and everything. They put their hand up sort of, but they're, you know, they're all artists. It's just, it gets beaten out of us. Yes. You know? Yeah. It, it, I, I agree with you that it's innate and yeah. it doesn't also this thing that everything has to be good, that, that, that it has to fit a certain standard. And that's what's really so intimidating to people is, mm. well, I'm, I'm no, I have no talent. I can't draw a straight line. People say to me all the time, say, who cares if you can yeah. draw a straight line? My father did a series of books teaching kids how to draw and adults how to draw, just saying, look, you, you can draw. Yeah. If you can draw a square, you can draw a triangle, you can draw a circle. Yeah. Nobody says I can't draw a circle. Nobody says I can't draw a square. Nobody says I can't draw a triangle. Yeah. So I say, well, if you can draw those, then you can draw one and then draw the triangle, draw the square, draw the line, draw the dot. You will have drawn something else. So you do actually know, already know how to draw. Yeah. It's just that your notion of what a drawing vocabulary is, as he would call those shapes, a, a drawing alphabet. Um, you're just not thinking, you already do know how to draw yeah. enough. And then once you got that ball rolling, you could, whatever, you can just, you know, in Ireland, it's a bit, it's a bit more that it, you know, if you're in a pub in the right pub at the right time, people will burst into song or play music and stuff. And that's a bit of that. And my observation as, as an American, and yeah. not native born Irish either, all the Irish people listening, um, they don't care whether you can sing well or not. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, but I, that's really different from the Americans and the Irish. And often the Irish, I notice when they, they appreciate a performer or a musician or a singer, they often really make a point of saying that they appreciate someone that has a lot of feeling to what they're doing rather mm. than singing on key or that they're really attractive. You know, they tend to really like something that has it, that's truly expressive, including the kind of singing that you do, Irish singing in a pub, uh, traditional singing. I mean, it's not necessarily perfect pitch singing, but it's really about song and about the moment and about... And that's terrific that it doesn't that that doesn't even happen that often It's not as often as it should that people should be allowed to just like hey just start singing in the middle of the room <laughs> why not that's, I think that's fantastic you know it should be done more often you know why not yeah I, I suppose for for myself I like to define art as an attempt to order the chaos of the world because we're ordering everything around us, inside us, our emotional state, our mental state into something that we define as our own order. And, and that's then expressed through whatever medium we choose to express it, whether it's uh, verbal through poetry or visual through paintings or art mm -hmm. or, yep. you know, a mix of both, which is children's books. <laughs> um, but continuing down this, I'd love to dig into your own history of working within children's books. You said you your first book was when you were 19. Um, how did that come about? What was then the process for you to then actually delve into this world? 
Um, it was my father's world. And so when I was at the house, being a useless teenager, I mean, we used to do work, small work jobs for my father. And um, one of the books that my father was doing called The Big Green Drawing Book was full of things to draw that were green. And uh, so he set me on the task because I always liked dinosaurs as a kid. He said, why don't you just do this whole section on the dinosaurs? Just do the whole thing, do everything instead of just because the jobs we were doing. Remember, we did a lot of color separating work, which a lot of people don't even know what that is anymore. But it's <clears throat> you had to pre-separate the color. It's basically like doing a giant coloring book. Um, we did color overlays for the separations using paper and a light box. Mm. It's more common to use mylar and um, acetate overlays, or now they don't do it at all. It's all done with um, cameras and computers. But if you were doing it by hand, um, so we used to do, you know, endlessly coloring, like a giant coloring book. But um, so anyway, I did the whole section of dinosaurs and true to, the rest of my life, I wasn't able to completely imitate his style. And so he suggested, instead of doing this, which is another way of getting your kid to do a job, so you don't have to pay him. He said, why don't, instead of redoing the artwork, why don't you just add, turn this into a book, like go over and, and turn this into a book yourself, and we'll submit it and see what happens. And so that's what I did. And, and um, publisher accepted it. And I did a, a sequel. <laughs> another book on how to draw dinosaurs uh, but i never thought of them as being some kind of personal you know creative thing they were i got spin off of my father's stuff and it was a way to make money and it's it was better than mowing lawns or you know picking apples or the kind of thing i used to do in a semi-rural suburb so then i did another book which is ridiculous it had to do with sports and it was more or less like a catalog it wasn't really even a book sports mm. equipment and stuff but uh, then I kind of stopped and I, then I went to art school. <laughs> I hadn't gone to art school yet. <laughs> so I went, decided I wanted to go to art school. It's a long story, but I, I didn't get there because I was screwing around and I messed up applications. Then I finally did go for a while, but then I only went for, I didn't even go for a full semester at Rhode Island School of Design because there was some camp for bike racing that was going on in Colorado, and I decided I want to do that. I mean, that was the last time <laughs> I ever had any thought of doing it really, really seriously. My knees just never lived up to it. But that, at that yeah. time, I thought, well, maybe I'll give it a shot. So I left art school. And uh, my parents always said they'd pay for one year of art, one year of college, and after that, you'd have to take care of it yourself. So I kind of did three quarters of one. Long story short, it was, it was a long time before I came back. So I did the bike racing thing for a bit. And then I, what did I do? Oh, then I left the East Coast of America and went to the West Coast of America just because. And I took some courses there at a school, but I never actually enrolled. I took some art courses, but they were never, had not, I never took any courses that had anything to do with illustration. There, there were always other things photography or sculpture or whatever. I did that for a while until it just got too expensive. School was too expensive. So I started doing a little bit of freelance illustration, but it wasn't paying much. I think I made 5,000 bucks one year. I don't wow. know how I lived the whole year on that, but I, I did back <laughs> in the day. 
And then I, I did that for a while, living really poor, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to do books because I didn't really decide to do books the first time. I decided to do books the second time, and I, what I really wanted to do was to, to maybe tell stories. So I never paid attention to school and writing, so I basically had to teach myself how to write. So one way or another, I scrimped by making enough money doing freelance illustration. I moved back to the East Coast. I got a studio, and I started to teach myself how to write slowly, painfully, and um, speed forward at the end of that period before I had the courage to go back to the same editor I was with before. So the first book was published in 1980, so I did it in 1979. And then the next one was, so, but the next book that was published was 1990. So it's like 10 years gap. Uh, but I really wanted to tell stories and be more involved in what I did. And so I ended up taking five book dummies <laughs> to the editor and they ended up buying three out of the five. So that started me. And the first one I did, which I considered the first book that I did, was called Ruby. And um, it, it was the first book that I did that was connected with things that are really important to me in the world. And one thing that was really, it's always been important to me is in stories or in life or something is, is lying or dishonesty. So I kind of focused on that and I was writing this story about animals and about lying and it was called Lorelei. And um, I'm writing this thing and I'm getting it up and I'm, I'm being funny. I'm thinking I'm being witty. I have a lot of people in the children's book world that I would have admired, like William Steig is an example of somebody that I would have really admired at the time. And um, I realized I was writing Little Red Riding Hood. <laughs> so then I had, I had a choice. I could have stopped completely and say, this is stupid. You're just writing Little Red Riding Hood. Or, or I could go the other direction and say, oh, I'm doing an homage to Little Red Riding Hood. So I went in that direction. And really, and I, 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 did, I was doing a lot of research at the time too, reading like a madman, the whole history of storytelling and how storytelling comes back to the beginning of time and how there's only so many really st real stories anyway. And that the whole notion that you're going to completely write a new story is, is real hubris. I mean, yeah. so I just thought, you know what, why, why pretend I'm going to write some new story? Why not just say, yeah, I'm rewriting Little Red Riding Hood. I'm like, why not? So it wasn't really like Little Red Riding Hood, but close enough. It, it released me to do uh, a story about lying, which Little Red Riding Hood is about. I mean, the wolf is a, is a, is a serious liar. The only twist I did in the story was she meets two, the little mouse character called Ruby, Ruby, Red, Red, Ruby's a Red, Red Riding Hood, Ruby. Um, she meets two liars. The first one is a really nasty reptile who is obviously bad, but he's not a liar. Like there's no deceit in this character. <laughs> he's just out there like, ah, nah, you know. <laughs> And then she meets this very well-dressed cat, you know, who's very slick and completely trying to trick her into everything, you know. And that's how we, that was. So that was the first book I did where I, I liked 
dialing into things that are in, always been in my head, tapping into ideas and things that you think about, things that have always meant something to you, things that have affected you emotionally throughout your life, and the whole idea of honesty and who's who's telling the truth and who's not, and just the basic idea that people are often very polite and nice are much worse than people that are nasty, but you know where they're coming from. You know, they're yeah. not hiding anything. You know what yeah. I mean? They're right out there. You know, I can, I can handle people like that better. You know, even if they're really nasty, it's like, I know where they're coming from. Like this, they're not pretending. Uh, so, so that was the first of that. And then I did kind of a sequel to that. I did, I fumbled around and I wasn't really, I was, I got a bit lost. I, I did another book that I really like called Welcome Back Son. And that's really about depression. <laughs> but, I, but again, it was, it was, it was always a thing. I it was doing a ton of reading at the time and trying to provoke myself into thinking about all the stuff that I, I've always been interested in about the light and the dark and seasons. Mm. And, uh, so it's about, you know, seasonal um um ritual welcoming back the spring i mean it's very appropriate this time of year you're welcoming back the sun um, after a lot of darkness and did various different techniques and then i kind of fumbled around a bit and i i was floundering you know i wasn't really um tapping into anything and then i met a woman at a book signing who wanted to do she came up to me with a completely off the wall suggestion and said uh, I know you can do these little, these cute little mice and stuff, but somebody asked me to do a book on HIV and AIDS for kids. Are you interested? And I went, no. I mean, well, tell me more. <laughs> like, what does that got to do with me? Yeah. She talked a bit more and she said, um, you know, I rejected this guy. And what I'd really like to do, she said, is do a book that's, I, I don't think that we can do this was at the time when AIDS was at its height. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we can do a book for kids about HIV and AIDS if they don't understand sex in the first place, because it's sexuality is at the key to the, to the, to the pandemic. It's um, that it, it is only passed on by sexual activity. So why don't people just stop sexual activity? Well, if you don't understand sexual sexuality, then you'll never understand why this would ever be a problem. So, what the word, the phrase is called comprehensive sexuality education. You basically don't talk about anything to do with sexuality unless you kind of give a broad view. So you make sure that your audience understands everything. So that intrigued me. And I, so I initially I just agreed to do sample illustrations for her. And she thought that she'd just go to the publisher with her thing and that would be it. And I said, I kind of explained to her, I said, look, I'm not really experienced, but that's not how it works. They generally want to put people together, but well, I will do the sample pictures and then we'll talk about it later. So long story short, they accepted the pictures and accepted the book. And um, that set me on a path. We worked together for over 10 years on three different books. First book took like three or four years to do. So that took me on a different path of one being a collaborator, which was terrific and, and wonderful and different than doing your own stuff. I really enjoyed being a collaborator. We eventually stopped working together, which I think is inevitable, like Lennon and McCartney things. You you eventually, you know, part your ways. But when your roles are defined and and that was it was very different, too, in that, that the book had a life of its own. The cause 
and the, the the children and their lives, their future lives was was really at, at the center of it. So we were kind of driven to do our best work for the kids, for the future audience. So it was a whole other mindset. And so we threw ourselves into it and worked endless hours. We joked that we'd never get paid for the hourly rate that we were spending on the book, but we, I, I wouldn't have done it any other way. I thought it was terrific. I would do it again and collaborating and completely sharing, you know, our roles were defined. We, we stepped on each other's turf a lot and banged these, these books out and they've, they've been extremely successful and sold millions of copies worldwide, you know, 35 countries, 40 languages around the world. And there's three of them, uh, so that was a whole world of doing art. And I'm, I'm not really that crazy about the artwork, to, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. It was a mountain of artwork to do, so I wasn't able to be precious about things. But we were really trying to do is communicate and be funny. My job was to be funny and be clear and be comfortable, to bring a comfort level to the picture. So it was a whole other way of thinking than what I was doing before with storytelling. And in between these, because it didn't work flat out for 10 years, I did other collaborations I mean, something that I never planned to do, but I worked with a woman who was the poet, children's poet laureate in the States doing a series of books called I Read to You, You Read to Me. And they were basically poems for two voices. They're poems written in two columns. So you could see them as songs or dialogue, or you could sing them, you could talk them, you could whatever, have two people doing them. Um, and that was it. That was terrific too. And I couldn't have predicted that. I mean, two nice collaborations i mean this woman was wonderful and and modest and um you know brilliant and she you know it's a bit older than me but absolute joy to work with i didn't work with her as closely as the other person and then uh i did even more um uh collaborations in between uh with a woman named barbara botner who i had already always admired her work particularly on a book called bootsy barker bites about a a uh, little girl who was uh, harassed by this uh, overbearing um, parent's uh, daughter that would be she'd be forced to play with. Did a series of books with her and a few other small, nice collaborations. And then at some point, you know, I just really wanted to do more of my own things and um, knuckled down again and... Um, made another big choice, which was I really wanted to do two things. I wanted to do expressive things, but I always still really loved explaining the world through pictures and stuff and thinking about science, which was the books on sexuality was a lot about science. So I I wrote a whole bunch of books related to science and I wrote several novels. None of these have been published. <laughs> I wrote several novels and, and um, early reader books uh, I haven't been able to get through them or finish them. The, the closest novel is still needs another whole edit, but um, I really enjoyed writing. And I, I have to say that there was a moment where I was writing and I, more than the pictures, I reached a moment where I thought I can do this for the rest of my life. Hmm. Writing was getting to a place that I couldn't quite get to with the illustration. And it turned out what I was really interested in is, and funny that, because I'm so interested in nonfiction and science and history and various other things, as well as the being funny is about emotion that um, 
It all boils down to emotion for me. Yeah. The stuff that I really like, films, art, et cetera, is emotional, like yeah. strong emotion. It could be sad. I like sad. I like happy. I like angry. I like horrible. I like ecstatic. I like strong emotion. And I like and I appreciate how it can be it can be expressed. And so I would aspire to that. And I, I like writing and the, the novel is is animals, but it's really a love story and turtle it falls for this bad tempered parrot that gets blown off course and you know, a classic sort of coming of age thing, but love stories have always appealed to me. So mm. I couldn't do that. So it's a little bit limiting in, in young children's books. So yeah. the idea of writing and exploring relationships and, you know, love and hate and, and those things, that, that I realized that the, being able to write the words along with it was, would be, again, something I'd be happy to do forever. Um, a little bit in my spare time, but again, I still don't do anything creative in my spare time because there's only so much time left in your day. And if you're doing all this stuff here, like you need to, you need to, I need to contrast it with something. <laughs> it could be going to the pub. It could be cycling through the mountains. Yeah. It could be just having a conversation with a friend, but I'm not going to really. And if I do do it, even on a day off, it's, I'm still thinking work. I'm still thinking this is this is about practice. It's about you know about being the life of an artist. Is it's still work for me. Yeah. But so that's it takes me up to today, and I'm still doing it strangely. Hmm. Uh, but I, I'm curious through that time of exploration, you had made enough from those previous books that it was able to sustain you, or were you doing freelance work? On the side, illustrating. Yeah, it all trickles through. The, the way trade book publishing works is you you're paid a percentage per book, and the, generally the contract will have an advance, and the advance is described as an advance on royalties. So, yeah. for instance, you do a book about a squirrel, and you get an advance of a hundred euros, and you get paid. the The contract says you're going to get paid one euro per book. Now, if you only sell 80 books and that's all the books you ever sell, you get to keep the 100 euros, you know, so it ends up being like a cash uh, contract. But if, say you were to sell 200 books, what happens is you get paid the 100 euros, usually half when you sign and half when you finish the artwork. They, now they try to do it in thirds, you know. One third when you sign it, one yeah. third when you finish the sketches, and one third when you finish the, the final art, and then you won't get paid any more until you sell the hundred books. So the hundred and first book goes on your royalty statement. Yeah, and they do their accounting every six months, and then their the accounting is for the six months previous. Yeah. So basically, if you sold say those hundred books, and then you sell that one. About one year later, you'll get that extra euro. But if you keep selling books, say the squirrel book takes off and everybody's really into squirrels and your squirrel is, I guess, that's it. The squirrel's everywhere. And you sell 100 million, then it'll trickle. But usually with children's books, it's not spiky. With adult books, it tends to spike and then drop. Children's books tend to go, they're kind of a slow burn. Mm. And um. I just won an award for a little book that I didn't get paid much money for, but 
you know, sometimes a book gets noticed and it, it takes a long time for it to get to notice. And then when it gets noticed, you can see sort of see a little bit of an up, uptick. So you can, your income from a book can kind of be all over the place. It generally goes down, but sometimes it goes up for a bit and then down, depending on going on. So the, the key is if you do a lot of books, you have a lot of advances, you're sort of jumping from one to the other. And then you have a lot of these little trickling income streams, yeah. little trickling things. And you can just about make it, you do have to do other stuff. But I also lived really lean, you know, yeah. really lean. <laughs> and for a while, when I was doing your expiration, as you call it, or or, or thrashing, uh, I, I, I was definitely, I was squatting in my studio for great lengths of time which is illegal in the States, you know, you're not supposed to be living in commercial property, but <clears throat> I did that. That was one way you live cheap. Yeah. You don't eat much or you, you look pathetic and your friends that have regular jobs will pay, pay for a night, pay for your drinks. <laughs> you kind of, I don't like to think about it. It's too, it's too frightening when I've been at those places I can never say that I've been poor, poor because I'm white, middle-class American, blah, blah, blah. There'd always be someone that would put me up. So, but I've been poor and I haven't asked for money. So I kind of know what it's like. I mean, I'll never know the real fear of not having money, but I, I have lived, yeah, some lean times, you know, I don't know how I did it. I just did it. You just do it, you know. You don't have a choice. You just have to I, I work. Got, I, I did get a job for a while. Um, my only job in the world, in, in my whole life, but it was doing sort of artwork. I lied my way into a job doing computer graphics. I had fooled around on a little piece of hardware briefly when I was living in California. I came back to Boston, and there was a job that came up, and I basically lied my way into it. And at that time, computer graphics was really young, and so people didn't really know. You could kind of BS way and, and I did and the art director liked me and so we worked we were basically doing video graphics for a company that taught oral expiration technicians how to change jobs it's a funny way of putting it but it was very high-end you know having to do with geophysics and things that, that people who look for oil the very high-end science of, of, of engineers that look for oil around the world <clears throat> no, so we, we barely understood what we were explaining, but we created sort of animated graphics of, you know, sound waves going up and down, things like that. And I did that for about a year until I just, I decided, um, it's funny at the time, I'm not bragging, but I, but for some reason it was just natural for me. And I know it was natural for me because there was a whole group of arty people around my same age. We all became friends. We were working in the art department. And only me and this other girl, woman, really had an aptitude for the computer. And they, tr everybody wanted to do it because it was a new thing. Computer graphics, we're going to do it. And they were all slow. They just couldn't go quick enough. And for some reason, and I, I don't take credit for it, it's just it must be how my brain was wired and how my friend there, Bethany's brain, was wired. We were just able to do it. You translated, I need to do this is the image I need. We just translated it and all the instructions, you know, move this here. That's like you do today with any of your less intuitive. I've never used program illustrator because I, I dabbled in it and it just 
I didn't find it intuitive at all. Uh, and back then, it, there was nothing intuitive about it. It was a series of commands. We were using DOS, which is like this really primitive thing. We had to do the, create the graphics, just typing in instructions, move to the left, sit, sit, sit. that's just paint line, draw line, something, something. You had to be able to think in procedures. How do, how do I get from A to B? There was like 16 steps. And the more complicated your imagination got, the more steps you had to put in. So I did that for a bit, but then I decided, for some reason, Mr. Lofty, I'd never made much money in my life. So even though I wasn't making much money, I was saving money because I had... I, I didn't, I didn't know how to spend money. Like I was, I spent, had so little money. So I ended up saving some money and thought, you know, I'll just quit. You know, I, the audacity, the, the arrogance of thinking I had a decent job and a decent future. I could have written my own ticket doing computer graphics. I'd be working for Pixar making millions of dollars. But um, I just said, you know what? This is not for me. You know, at the time, computers needed they weren't well constructed. They they generated a lot of heat, so you had to be in an air conditioned room. And they never they didn't quite figure out how to put the computer in one room and you in, in this room. They they were just beginning that. So you had to be in an air conditioned room. The light the screens weren't as good, so the room had to be sort of dim, and the materials were all plastic. And so I just saw like my future. Like I want to spend a huge amount of my life in a dark windowless air conditioned room touching plastic staring <laughs> at flickering light for the rest of my life and I went F this and I took off and started traveling and spent the whole year traveling and that's when I went away and then I, when I came back I decided I wanted to do children's books more seriously and that's when I started trying to teach myself how to write and that was the ticket to children's books is if you didn't write, then you couldn't control what you were doing. Mm. So I, it was very strategic. I ended up really liking it, but it, it was strategic initially. So, so yeah, that was that's that. And I've been doing it ever since. I don't like to think about it too much or look directly at, like, you don't want to look directly at, at you know, if I look at it, it might disappear. This, <laughs> what, you, you, what do you do? I, 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 I don't want to talk about it. I, I draw, <laughs> I draw funny little things on a piece of paper and they pay me for it. What, what, I don't, what, what did I say? Did I say that? Is that real? No, it's real. It is real. I'm still getting away with it. It feels like I'm getting away with something um, for sure. Well, I'm curious, what is one, what is advice you would give to an aspiring children's book writer, illustrator, somebody coming up behind you? Think of it to think about what you want to do, you know, if you want to be an illustrator, if you want to be a writer, children's books is, is storytelling. Children's books is, there's a degree of repetition to it. I mean, comic books is the most, well, no, animation is the most repetition. Um, second is comics and third is children's books. You need to be able to repeat things generally, unless you do a book that's all about completely freedom and, you know, uh, you know, different picture on every page, but a lot of storytelling is you need to be able to draw the same characters over and over again. You need to be able to express yourself on a page. You need to be, you need to be willing to do artwork that can be reproduced. Certain color combinations will never look exactly the same. You need to be able to think that you're going to be producing for a book and that ultimately to avoid being disappointed, you need to 
understand that when you're doing illustration of any kind, but illustration in general is that you're working for the printed page ultimately, and you're working for a child, but you've got four gatekeepers before the child and they're all grown-ups. <laughs> That's the bizarre <laughs> world of children's books. So you need to appeal to adults, but always keep in mind that your ultimate audience is a child and they're never going to see your work outside of a book. So you have to think about books. You need to like books. Books have a tempo. They have an opening. They have a page turn. There's a pause. If you're telling a story in a book, it's generally 32 pages with 16 spreads. That's the most common thing. You need to be able to tell a story in 16 spreads, usually less, 12 spreads, you know, 24 pictures. The story needs to fit on a page. That There needs to be not very much text. It has to marry. You need to be able to see, to look harmonious. One can't be distracting from the other. You need to accommodate for that page turn. You need to be able to tell a story with 16 pauses. You know, uh, you have to think if you like that, if you like working within the context of the book, then do it. But don't just do it because it's cool. Don't just do it because you think you'll make money. Don't just do it because, you know, it gives you a chance to stroke your ego and do a whole bunch of illustrations and you become published. I'm published. Again, that's <laughs> another thing that means nothing to me because it goes back to my childhood. So it's like, and I do understand some people, it's their lifelong goal to be a published author or a published whatever. And okay, I feel sorry for them to a degree. I'm sorry, but I do, because if that's what you're hanging your self-worth and identity on, you need to work on your self-worth and identity. It can be a part of you, but it's too tenuous, man. It's like hanging your identity on the edge of a cliff. Mm. You know, you fall right off. Boom. What if you don't get that book published? Well, what if you do and you, it doesn't make you happy? This mm. classic, or don't worry about it. it. It's interesting, but it ain't. Doesn't make me a better person. Sure. So if you want to be published and all that kind of stuff, I just say relax about that stuff. You try it. <laughs> Go ahead. Try it. Get help. Try it. But don't attach too much flowery stuff on it. You know, it's just a thing. It might be your thing. It might not be your thing. Um, give it a try. It's generally a lot more work than people think. Yeah. You know, but no, it's, it's why I never ended up doing animation, even though I studied it. At the end of the course, I was like, yes, I am not doing this. It's mm. a job. It's not for me. But children's books was that happy middle ground for me where I could do the characters and bring them to life. And, you know, tell the story I wanted to without killing myself over the monotonousness of the job. And and like you said, I think it's important to really enjoy the process and, and know the purpose behind why you're doing it and not allow the so-called prestige or even the, the need for... Uh, you shouldn't base your identity validation. on it. Yeah, yeah. Need for validation. You shouldn't base your identity on it. it. Your identity should be your own. And this is just an outworking or an expression of it to tell a story or solve a problem, depending on where you're coming from. And don't forget the first part of the, the word in the job. 
yeah. children's children yeah <laughs> children's books it's not a place for you to you know strut your ego yeah it's a children's book yeah we're making something for children remember that <laughs> <laughs> well Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of The Fruitful Life. I hope you all walk away with some nuggets of wisdom. If you did, please do me a favor and leave a rating and a comment to let me know what you think of this show. Also, consider telling a friend who might like it. As always, be true, be you, stay fruitful.